This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by This Is Not Church podcast and the letter F. And you. (laughs) (laughs) If you've made it this far, my name is Nat Turney, my brother John Turney, and I co-host This Is Not Church, the podcast. And this is sadly the level of discourse that you can expect to find if you tune in every Monday when we drop new episodes. But all joking aside, John and I see this as as an opportunity for us to address issues that we don't think are addressed nearly enough inside of evangelicalism. So LGBTQIA plus issues, BIPOC issues, social justice issues. We like to talk to a broad variety and range of people and really try to find places of commonality for everybody. So check out the podcast. Every Monday, our episodes drop. Wherever you stream podcasts, you can find us. Remember, this is not church. And to that, John says, Peace. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, 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 yes, it is the Heretic Happy Hour, and I am so excited to kick off this episode in our series on church trauma. Um, difficult topic, but uh, we're going to do our best to make it something that's hopeful and healing and all that. But uh, my name is Keith Giles. I am the author of the Seven Part Jesus Un series and the recently released Solo Mysterium. And I am joined by my illustrious co-hosts, Katie, December, Shonda, and Matt. Please say hello and introduce yourselves. Hello, everyone. It's Katie Valentine. I'm the founder of The Metaphysical Christian, the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control, and this, like, I'm trying to be as pumped up as I can because we're in the middle of a series on, you know, like trauma. But we're going to, we, we still have some lighthearted stuff in here for you today, too. <laughs> hey, 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 everybody. This is December Rose, the author of God Does Not Want Your Bill Money and The Church Can Go to Hell. Uh, two <laughs> things that I think fit perfectly with what we're talking about with trauma. <laughs> um, feel free to send the church to hell if you need to during this broadcast, but I'm glad to be here. Hey, everybody. <laughs> I am Shonda Ja. My mother thinks that my book, Transforming Communities, How People Like You Are Healing Their Neighborhoods, is okay. And since she's Scottish, that's pretty big praise. Okay in Scottish must be huge, huge praise, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, well, good. I'm, I'm Matt DiStefano, the fifth and final host slash producer and excited for another episode. I guess this is now our third episode altogether, and I think it's going okay. Yeah. Are you Scottish too? I, I do have a little bit of Scottish, but not not a not a ton. No. I've got some. I have some Scottish in my uh, yeah. my background too. You are way too enthusiastic to be Scottish, Keith. My oh, DNA got reconfigured, you know, like Ancestry does, and it turns out I'm like 48 percent Scottish as of now. But this could change oh. with the wow. new Whatever, it's going to change. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm just. I need to go across the sea to one more. I can't be certain. I I, I probably got about two or three percent. You know, I am African American after all. Well, an interesting fact, my, my legal last name is Waddleton, and there are uh, only about eight of us in the United States, so it's not a common name, and whoa. people don't hear it often. And so I researched it, and guess where that name is found? In <laughs> Scotland and Australia. So I really could be. You could really be. Squeezed. We're all family. I yes, love it. I'm a Waddleton. So. Is Waddleton's T's or D's? T's, W-A-T-T-L-E-T-O-N. And when I looked it up, Australia and Scotland is where it popped up. Wow. So literally, I'm I'm pretty sure I got about two three percent in there somewhere. But you know, I'm mostly West African. You you know. Yes. <laughs> wow. Wow. 
All right. Well, I hope I hope y'all la- liked last week's Stone Thoughts with Matt. I tried to keep it a little shorter this time. So thank you. Let's let's hear from Stone Matt here. Okay, so you know how the universe is expanding? What is it expanding into? <laughs> like space? What is space? It's, it's like empty space, right? Well, then if the space is empty space, then what is the space expanding into? Like emptier space? Like what is that? You know what I mean? Like what does that even mean? You've got this empty space and it's getting bigger. So then what's outside? What is it getting bigger into? Am I just stoned? Uh-huh. Or does that make sense? Woo. Oh, wow. Matt, this will be your next book. I, I just uh, declare it. I'll sponsor it. I'll write the forward. Oh my gosh, it'll be mm. right in front of the cash register. Sold. That's right. And the title should be, Am I Just Stoned? Or does that make sense? <laughs> Perfect. Oh, God bless you both. There's a whole franchising thing going on. Like you can do, do t-shirts and everything. Uh-huh. Am I Just Stoned? Yes, yes, oh. I see it. I see the vision. Heretic Happy Hour is just the gateway drug to your, your actual <laughs> fortune. Yes, we are all enablers. I, I will. I will. I promise to remember you when I'm famous. <laughs> wow. So actually, I really, I really like the question because this is the kind of thing I read in my, like, I don't know, I'll go on a little tangent about this kind of thing. And, you know, I think even someone asked Einstein, like, what is on the other side of space? He was like, no, no one knows. Right? Uh-huh. Like, what is it expanding into? But did y'all know, and it's like in a hundred billion years, I think, the universe is expanding so much that if humans are still around and they're still planet Earth and they look up into the night sky, they won't be able to see any other galaxies because they'll be too far. Damn. How crazy is that? Because the universe ex- uh, expands faster than light. In a hundred yeah, billion years, did you say? Correct. I feel so like we've clocks. got eight years until the climate crisis wipes us out. So Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to make it. We're going to keep seeing <laughs> galaxies, is what I'm saying. That's the good news, everybody. You can write <laughs> it till the very end in the next the 10 stars years. The will be awesome still. for the next eight years. If you can still oh, wish it doesn't have to be humans. Any alien in the Milky Way, I guess, wouldn't be able so to see. Cockroaches, basically. Cockroaches who look up at the night sky will be able to I see. did not know that I was on a podcast with apocalypse conspiracy theorists. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get my whole life together if I only got two years left. Actually, if you only have that much time left, just live it to the, you know, live it to yeah, the Yeah, there you go. That's like, right. I feel like that's what Matt's really teaching us with this series. Yeah, and on a deep note, I guess, let's say that your stone thoughts are more than stone thoughts, which that's debatable, but let's just say that it is. <laughs> I feel like that was some shade. Yeah. yeah, just a tiny bit, just a tiny bit. I, I, I'm, dark, I'm dark enough to throw shade. I don't know about y'all, but uh, <laughs> um, I would say if we're if we're talking about eternity and the fact that it's limitless and endless, then it's then then the galaxy is just expanding into eternity, right? There isn't any. There's not anything that it's expanding into more than it's it's just becoming what it is. That's my that's my stone my unstone stone thought. <laughs> yeah. that, um, <laughs> that the galaxy almost like a like a human beings 
right? So we are born and we continue to, quote, expand and we continue to grow into whatever we're supposed to be until we die. And I think that's what the universe is just doing. It's just expanding into what it already is, like a, like yeah. a human being. And when it's done, it's done. Hopefully that's not in the next 10 years. <laughs> but <laughs> if it is, at least we get to see stars until we go. That's it's right. not too late. We can still fix it. But I totally agree with that. Like, I, I like that idea of like the universe expanding into itself, right? If we're, if we're conceding, you know, infinite space. Have, are any of you Douglas Adams fans? Have any of you read the oh, book? Yes. Um, oh, yeah, yes. The Restaurant at the End of the Universe? Yes. Um, so the whole point of that is actually to, to say the uh, temporal end, the temporal end of the universe as opposed to the, uh, space. Spatial, spatial end of the universe, spatial. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that those things go hand in hand with each other. I'm not sure what to do with it, but that's where we, yeah, that's where I am on it. Yeah, it is It is a bit of that paradox. I mean, I, I've been reading, I've been loving reading um, like uh, Carlo Rovelli um, and some of his books on, um, he's a theoretical physicist. If you've ever read any of his books, he has one called Reality is Not What It Seems, which is phenomenal. And, um, and he touches on some of this too, like this idea of like time is an illusion and there's this, kind of, you know, mind-blowing, bending paradox of time and space and how they're kind of the same thing and they de- they're dependent on each other, but they're separate. I mean, it's, it is one of those things where like, I, I don't even know that there is an answer to these kind of questions. They're fascinating, but um, man, it kind of just breaks your brain to try to conceive of it, right? So that was a good one. Right now, I'm feeling like I rode to work on the short bus. If you're talking about you reading... <laughs> About theoretical, theoretical physicists. But I'm like, y'all reading what? <laughs> I'm over here watching Mary Poppins and the Sword in the Stone and stuff like that. And watching scene two. Y'all reading about theoretical physicists. I ain't sure. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah, well, <laughs> reading, reading these books and understanding them are two different things. I was so. going to say, sometimes yeah. I follow the words on the page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of like when I read, I had to read Heart of Darkness. I finished that uh-huh. book and thought, I, what was that book about? So yeah, unclear. So yeah. Well, okay. So speaking of um, stone thoughts, universe expanding, consciousness reigning, we have a wonderful heretic of the week. She is going to talk to you about all things Gnostic and um, the inner light and consciousness expanding. So you're just going to love this heretic. It's the heretic of the week. Hello. Um, my name is Elaine Pagels. Hi, Elaine. Elaine, thanks so much for coming on the show. First question we'd like to ask people is, why would anyone consider you a heretic? I've been called a heretic, and I actually like a lot of things about sources that are called heresy. I'm a professor of religion at Princeton University, and history of Christianity is what I teach there. The beginning of the Christian movement, how it grew, and so forth. But when I was in graduate school, our group had the great surprise of discovering um, as to 52 ancient Christian texts that had never been read before. Some of them include Christian Gospels, which aren't in the New Testament, and that's why they're called heretical by some. But actually, I started like many other people here, no doubt, Um, maybe not. Growing up in California, my family was Protestant nominally, but my father had given it all up for Darwin 
Uh, as soon as he discovered Darwin, he gave up a kind of ferocious Presbyterianism in which everyone was roasting over the fires of hell. And he said, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Forget that. That's only for people who are ignorant. So I was brought up to think religion was for people who just weren't educated, didn't know about science. Then, one day, when I was in high school in a boring town, Palo Alto, somebody invited me to San Francisco. And what I didn't know was what we were going to. It was a huge event where I had seen baseball play in the stadium, but it was a, it was a Billy Graham crusade, and I didn't know who he was. So there was a preacher. There were 18,000 people in the stadium, a huge choir, and a very powerful message, actually, one that surprised me. And, and then at the end, the preacher ended with a, you know, you can be born again, you can have a new life. I was 14. I thought, that's great. I can just have a whole different identity. But it was also very moving and powerful in other ways. So I went straight down with thousands of other people and was born again. And my family was horrified. Um, but I joined an evangelical church and I was deeply involved for about a year. It's like falling in love when you're in high school, you know? Like, a year is a long time. But I fell out of love. And what happened was that one of my closest friends in high school in Palo Alto was in an automobile accident and was killed. He was 16. And, um, I went back to the little evangelical church and I was just shocked and devastated like the rest of us. And they said, well, that's terrible. Was he born again? And I said, no, he was Jewish. They said, well, then he's in hell. And I mm. felt like I'd been socked in the stomach. And I said, well, wasn't Jesus Jewish? <laughs> yeah. Well, that didn't seem to count. Anyway, I was just so shocked and devastated that I walked out of there and I never went back. Mm. So I gave all that stuff up for a few years and went out with my friends in that group who were all artists and musicians. Um, one of them later started the group called The Grateful Dead, um, Jerry Garcia. Whoa! Was wow. that, he was in that accident. He was in that accident. Oh, man. And... Um, and so we had a we had a lot of interesting times together, and then I went off to New York to study modern dance with some terrific modern dancers there, and had left religion behind. But I discovered after about a year of this amazing dance training that I was pretty good, you know. But if you're in New York, pretty good is nowhere. I mean, right. you know, yeah. there were people who were really good. And I knew I'd be waiting on tables forever. So I thought, okay, what about plan B? And at that point, four years after the accident, I thought something about it was very powerful. It, it really opened up a new world to me uh, of imagination, of kind of a sense of a spiritual connection. I felt like, like I'd been living on a flat earth and suddenly it opened up. And... Um, and it was important to me. So I kept saying, was it about that? Was it about Christianity? Could it have been Judaism? Could it have been Buddhism? So I decided to go back to graduate school and find out what we could about how the Christianity started. So that's what I do. That's amazing. Um, 
Well, I, I just want to say, Elaine, I am so, so excited to talk to you and, and so excited to have you on the podcast. And for me, what's so, so amazing for me about, um, I, I came across your book, um, Beyond Belief. And, oh, yeah. and, and really, I'm sad to say only recently, um, maybe like, you know, four or five months ago, but, but really blew my mind about your book and the work that you've done. And, uh, and since then I've dived, I've taken a pretty deep dive in everything else that you've done. But, um, you know, I had, I had spent some time on my own reading and studying like early church fathers and things like that, but only from the perspective of certain topics, right? Like ecclesiology or, um, nonviolence, um, or I, I spent some time studying for a book I was working on about patristic universalism. And so, you know, so you end up reading quotes from early church fathers and, and, you know, and I, I kind of had the idea that I, I knew it. I got it. I understood this whole early church thing. I knew who these guys were and I knew what they're all about. But then I read your book um, and it blew my mind because now suddenly I saw these characters, Irenaeus and Athanasius and some others from completely different light. And I want to just thank you so much because I, I had no idea. And so this is a very long question. I'm sorry. So my question would be, um, can you share a little bit about, because this is one of the first things that just blew my mind, um, was uh, this conflict that, that, that was going on in the early church between Irenaeus and this guy named Valentinus and some of his followers. What was the conflict? And then what did that, why is that important? And how did that lead to what we now know as some of the Nag Hammadi uh, scriptures and, and writings. Yeah, that's that's a complicated question. I mean, when I got to graduate school, you know, what you learn in graduate school is the church fathers. I read Irenaeus, and and he talks a lot about orthodox yeah. understanding of Christianity. You know, um, the early creed. You know, I believe in one God, Father Almighty, Maker of heaven, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And so forth. Okay, and and that's what you learn. And then suddenly. Someone said, there's been a discovery of ancient religious texts found in Upper Egypt, 1945, but it had been hidden, and yep. only a few scholars knew about it. And only the people at Harvard and also at Claremont uh, University in California, there were two universities in this country where we had access to 52 ancient texts, including five secret gospels marked top secret. Mm -hmm. And we were supposed to translate them because they'd been written in Greek, like the New Testament, and they've been translated into Coptic, which is an African language, completely different language structure, not easy to read, I guarantee But when I opened one of them, it's called the Gospel According to Thomas, you know? Yeah. And what it is, it's not a narrative, as you know. It's just 14 sayings. Mm -hmm. And the one that really hit me was saying number 70. It says, Jesus said, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Yeah. And I thought, well, you don't have to believe that. It just happens to be true. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I was thinking of it as a psychological story. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. And I think it works that way. Much later, though, Keith, I realize it's also a theological statement because it's a statement about everyone created in the image of God. Yeah. And because we're all created in the image of God, we all have within us a kind of 
energy that comes from the creator and comes from the primordial creation that is a kind of secret link back of access to God. That's what this remarkable text suggests. And I found it illuminating, to say the least, surprising. Yes. It's a different kind of Christianity. You know, it sounds to me more like a first century rabbi, a lot more than the Gospel of John, for sure. Yeah. So now we know that there were, there wasn't just a, an early Christian church or an early Christian tradition. There were several. Yes. And they were continuing. And this other tradition tends to say, well, Jesus is not a unique incarnate God walking on earth. Jesus is, is the one who manifests the divine source, who teaches us about where we come from which is we come from God. And it sounds a lot like Jewish mysticism, which we get to know, you know, in writing only by the 10th to 15th century from Sephardic Jewish communities um, in Spain. Because you weren't supposed to write down secret tradition. So it's not that this other tradition in the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, it's not that anyone's saying you should take these secret Gospels and throw out the New Testament. Right. Instead, they say, well, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, these give you the public teaching of Jesus, right? He's out on the hills of Galilee preaching to thousands. And it tells you what the public teaching was. And Mark says, oh yes, but when he was alone with his disciples, Mark 4.10, he said, to you alone is given the mystery of the kingdom of God, not to outsiders. I'm not telling them. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to know. Quite shocking. Yes. And then Mark never tells you what the secret teaching is. He just gives you the public teaching. So, the church of the fourth century chose the narrative gospels. For one thing, they're easier to read, you know, stories of Jesus healing and walking through Galilee and the story of the crucifixion and all of that. And these assume that you know all that and that you're now ready to go to a different level of teaching, which mm-hmm. is a kind of mystical teaching. Right. And that's what these gospels suggest. Yeah. And what I find really fascinating about that teaching, like you just pointed out, and that's in Thomas and it's in Mary and it's in Philip and all these other places. It's not only in those gospels. You can find um, traces of that same kind of idea in Colossians, in Ephesians, and, and even in the gospel of John and some, and other places. So it's not as if these ideas were completely foreign to even some of the gospel writers or some of the, some of the early New Testament documents, right? The, the, this, these ideas were discussed, and they were they did kind of leak out, if you will. Yes, I mean Matthew's gospel says you are the you are the light of the world, right? suggesting that that's yeah. one statement. the The letter to the Ephesians talks about Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers. Right? Yeah. So a big difference is this, and because because we kept saying, well, what's even our professors 
my wonderful professor, Christer Sendahl, who was the Archbishop of Sweden, actually, the great biblical scholar. He worked on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He said, you know, until you started looking at this stuff, Elaine, we thought they were just weird. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was told they were just weird. I mean, expect this to be garbage and not to make much sense. But when I read the Gospel of Thomas, like as you do, Keith, I say, wait a minute, this is really interesting. Yeah. So we haven't really said the G word yet, and that might be helpful for our uh, for our listeners. So can you kind of fill us in on what um, Gnosticism is or what Gnostic Gospels are, the conceptions and the misperceptions as well? Because that's a, that's a word that I think a lot of people know, um, it's speaking of. I'm sorry for my pun there, but a lot of people know the word Gnostic. So <laughs> let's talk about what, what that means and what it doesn't mean. When I first wrote about them, I called them the Gnostic Gospels because that's what we call them. And, and that's a derogatory term yeah. um, that was used by the fathers of the church to say, oh, those, those people don't have faith. They don't believe. They, they just think they know everything. Well, the word Gnostic is about knowing. But it's not about intellectual knowing, because in Greek, you have a word for knowing intellectually, day, and it means you see something in the mind. You have another word for, rec- like, I recognize you. Do you know who you are? Do you know that person? Do you know God? That's heart knowledge, not intellectual knowledge. It's just like in French, you know, there's connaître and savoir, or canon and visin in German, or Conocer and saber in Spanish. Two kinds of knowing. This is hard knowing. But it was used as a negative term. And I don't use it now. I wouldn't call them Gnostic Gospels. I would call them other Christian Gospels that have what is intended to be a kind of advanced level teaching for only for people who are ready for it, who are mature. Because if you say to anybody, well, oh, you have the Spirit of God in you, then immature people could get megalomaniac or misunderstand or, you know, simply not have a mature understanding of what that might mean. Yeah, so it seems like there might have been some kind of initiatory process or some way that people got to this level where they could get this teaching. Not only that, you know, Katie, but in 1 Corinthians, you remember Paul says, we too speak wisdom among the initiates. The word teleos means mature, but it means initiated. He said, but I'm not talking that about that to you people. I mean, you're babies in Christ. I'm just going to give you the basics. And Paul, like any other Jew initiated into secret mysteries would not write it down. We're not supposed to write it down. It's supposed to be communicated orally. And he says, I do that, but I'm not going to write it in my letters. But as Keith mentioned, Ephesians and Colossians, these are the letters that followers of Paul who felt they understood the secret teaching yeah. loved best. And First Corinthians, they love that too. So it's it's a it's the idea you know if you think about it any religious tradition you name it could be Hinduism Buddhism Islam Judaism it has a basic teaching and it has a mystical teaching yeah and it's only Christianity that said no 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 secret <laughs> teaching now there are mystics you know right. like Saint John of the Cross people like that Teresa of Avila. 
but they have to agree with the teaching of the church. Yeah. Yeah. And they have to be orthodox. If they're not tested orthodox, they aren't supposed to go there. These, that kind of um, freelance exploration of spiritual reality is totally prohibited in Orthodox Christianity. Because actually, as one anthropologist friend of mine says, religious imagination and insanity have a lot in common. And people can get deluded and do. Um, I talked to 12 psychiatrists when I was at, visiting Stanford University working on this book and had lunch with them because my anthropologist friend arranged this. And I said, if somebody comes to you with a sense of a religious experience, do you assume they're deluded? And they all sort of looked at me and said, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and my anthropologist friend, Tanya Lerman at Stanford, is trying to say, wait a minute. Countless people throughout the world, I mean, America talking about decline in religious belief or orthodoxy, but the rest of the world isn't. I mean, spiritual experience is part of the experience of countless people. And these texts aren't about what you believe, they're about experience. And that's why I find them very compelling. Yeah, it's, it seems that um, when Christianity decided to close the canon and say what is canon and what is other, then that opens the door for the pejorative Gnostic or for the pejorative uh, heterodox or heretic or apostate. And and, and I wonder what that is. Do you, do you have some thoughts on why that happened? And because my thought, you know, I get cynical about it, but, you know, maybe you can kind of shed some light on, on why that was the case. I'm really glad you brought that up because I don't think it's a cynical matter. Canon simply meant, well, I have a canon in my office. It's, it's, a, it's a brass um, instrument on, the, on a string. And and what you do is, if you're building a wall, a cannon is something you hold up to see if the wall is straight. Yeah, like a plumb line. They use this in Egypt, a plumb line. So the cannon was structured to say, okay, what, what should you be reading in, in, in worship, in church? And that's what it's for. Now, as the point you raise is important, it doesn't have to be closed. It could just be basic stuff, basic books. And those basic books are the narrative gospels because they're about the birth of jesus the life of jesus the teachings the healings the death of jesus the resurrection those are stories that are easier to comprehend and that's pretty basic doesn't mean you have to stop there but the person who wrote the first canon that is used today said stop with mine just these books no more books stop yep anyone who doesn't accept those books and throw out the other books. And that bishop ordered the Christian monks who were using these in their devotions in a Christian monastery in Upper Egypt, get rid of those books, burn them. So they were hidden for nearly 2,000 years. Yeah, if they had burned them, probably like they were told to do, we, they would have been over, right? So, the, But the fact that he just stuck them in a jar and buried it somewhere, at least gave it the opportunity that at some point, like you said, in 1945, some some person accidentally uncovers them, and we have them. And then 
reading them myself, like reading uh, some of those Gospel of Truth, which I had never even heard of before, uh, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary and Thomas. Um, I just feel like what, first of all, what a treasure. And second of all, I feel like Christianity was robbed from like that, from like the fourth century until in 1948 of, of having access to all of these things, to all these writings. And it's really sad to me that that happened. But, but to see uh, the thing that you pointed out in, in your book that I had never thought about before was, um, you know, when, when, when the, um, church, quote unquote, church fathers decided, well, these are the approved books. These are the books that we're going to consider, you know, scripture. That, that doing so, it was a political move. It was, it was basically to say, oh, good, finally, with the authority of the Roman Empire, we can now say under penalty of death or torture or imprisonment, you must only use these books. And if you use these other books, now you're in trouble, you're a heretic. And it was a way of basically winning this struggle that had been going on for a long time in the early church, a struggle that Irenaeus wasn't able uh, to win, you know, against Valentinus and others who are following some of these teachings and these writings. Um, and then suddenly it, it was like, oh, good, this is our chance. And tell me if you think that's fair, because that's, that's what I came across reading your book. Like, now it makes sense. This is why so many of them went along uh, with some of these changes, because it was sort of like, okay, we can finally, once and for all, settle this struggle that's been going on internally and say, we are, we've got it and you don't, we're in, you're out. And, and we're going to get rid of all these teachings. That's right. And of course, what see what we call Christianity for two thousand years Keith, is a narrow stream. There was a lot more. Yes, but I, it's not just that Irenaeus was trying to control people's behavior. That what I had, didn't realize when I was working on it at first is something is going on in the second century, the third century, and that is called persecution. Right. Yes. If you're a Christian and they say, all right, Keith Giles, are you a Christian? And you say, yes, I am. Then they can cut your head off or torture you. Yeah. Right. So it is criminal. It is a lethal crime to be a Christian in the Roman Empire if you're accused and convicted. And Irenaeus saw 20 people in his own community go into the sports arena and be tortured to death in horrible ways to entertain yeah. the public on the emperor's birthday. Yeah. And this is after Emperor Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher emperor, had been persuaded that he could use condemned criminals for public entertainment instead of trained gladiators because they're cheaper. And it was a time of inflation, so we can understand it. <laughs> but more importantly, Irenaeus had suffered a huge loss of people he knew and loved. Yes. And he felt, as did his mentor, Polycarp, in Syria. Yeah. And, and Polycarp, his mentor, was like 82, a respected leader, when he was burned to death in public for the crime of being a Christian in a public arena, burned alive. Mm. So they felt, look, it's really important to, to save our lives, to decide what's the basic thing that Christians believe. Let's just set out, I believe in this and this and this, and these are the books we read, and we all agree on that. So that, you know, when he went to Rome to, to tell about the death of his dear friends in the church, 
horribly killed in, in the arena. He told the people in Rome, um, he wanted to say, we're all part of the same universal church. And that's because now we know, we all say, all of us in this conversation share the same sources and we say the same thing. doesn't matter if you're in Africa or Germany or Spain, we all agree. So it was, I kept thinking it's sort of like the American Revolution when one, somebody said, if we don't all hang together, we shall surely all hang separately. So they were trying to unify and save the lives of people. So it's more than some kind of, you know, control freak attitude. Right. But the result is that only certain kinds of Christianity are then endorsed and all the others are demonized. So I have a, I have a thought if you can uh, maybe share your imagination with us. If things had gone differently and we, we had more, had had more access to these gospels, um, do you imagine that they actually would have been shared or would they have remained, you know, secret for, for the initiated? Um, so th- this gap between the second, third century and 1947, would we actually have had access to them or, you know, would they remain for only a select few? I mean, I know there's no way we can really know, but. If you're Jewish and you follow the prescriptions of Torah and you respect the 613 commandments of God, and so forth, then you, you may be satisfied with that practice. You might want to go further. You might want to look into mystical Judaism. And if you're that kind of person, and there, none of us would be having this conversation if we weren't, you would try to go further, and those sources would be there, just as they are in Islam, and just as they are in Buddhism, just as they are in Hinduism. But the people who did go further, well, they were censored. But here's something else. when I, We kept saying, okay, what's the big difference between the Gospels of the New Testament and the Gospels of Philip or Thomas or Mary Magdalene. Well, one big difference is that the New Testament Gospels all say Jesus was an utterly unique being. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And the Gospel of John just sort of takes the cake there and says he's, the, he's God incarnate in human form. The only one, by the way, in the history of the universe, okay? Yes. And if you aren't saved through him, you're lost. Hmm. And after the fourth century, everybody in the Orthodox Church, Nicene Church, gets taught to read all of the Gospels through John. If you don't read it through John, you don't get the message that Jesus is God walking on earth. You get very different kinds of possibility. But the Gospels... The secret gospels basically say, Jesus, yes, he's the manifestation of the divine light. He's called the Christ. Uh, he's called the Savior. But he's seen as the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament says, one of one among many brothers. Yeah. Because the Gospel of Thomas says that it's written by Thomas the twin. Thomas the twin. You know him from the Gospel of John, perhaps. He's, his name is Judas. Did him as Judas Thomas. He appears in John 20 and 21. 
and his name, his name is Judas, but it keeps saying, not Iscariot, not that one. But they don't call him Judas. They call him Thomas, which is Aramaic for the twin. Or they call him Didymus, which means Greek for the twin. So he's the sort of main character in the Gospel of Thomas. And he asked Jesus questions. And people said, well, does that mean Jesus had a twin brother? And I think, no, no, no. This is not a literal gospel. This gospel suggests that you, the, the reader, the hearer, is talking to you, and you are Thomas, and you suddenly come to realize at the end that Jesus says, whoever accepts my teaching, whoever drinks from my mouth, will become like me. I will become that person, and the person will understand the mysteries. So it's like Jesus is here pictured as your twin, your spiritual twin, the one you may not even know you have, your, your other self. And so it's, a, it's about people who feel that Jesus is the one incarnate son of God in the history of the universe, and people who say, Jesus manifests what is possible for any human being created in the image of God, which means everyone. Right. But it isn't easy to find that access to God. You have to look very deep. You have to forget who your, what your name is and where you come from. And leave your ordinary identity out because everyone here has a different name, place to come from, birth date, color of eyes, um, family background, all of that. Because we individuate our identities on the birth certificate, on the driver's license. But in the Gospel of Thomas, you're supposed to come to understand another identity, which is spiritual. And Jesus says, if people ask you, who are you? This is saying 50. Say, or no, the first question is, he says, if people say, where do you come from? You don't say California or whatever. You say, we come from the light. We come from the place where the light came into being at the beginning of time and manifested itself through the image. Hmm. Now, it's not I come from there. It's not you, it's we. We. So we all come. And then the next question is, well, who are you then? And the answer Jesus suggests, this is a second initiation, is we are children of the living Father. Meaning, we're all family. So this, this, this gospel is about discovering a pathway to the divine source through this deep inside connection which you may not even know is there and it is about experience and not simply believing in a bunch of things it's about struggle and suffering and trying to understand how we could possibly be connected with god but the gospel of truth is also about that it's a beautiful myth i love that one me too I've been writing about that well lane this has been a wonderful conversation. Very, very exciting, very stimulating. I'm so grateful that you took the time to share with us um, and our listeners. Is there any way, is there anything you'd like our listeners to know? I mean, I don't know if there's a way, uh, if you want people to connect with you or not, but if you do, if you have a blog or a website, are you working out, if you have a book coming out or anything like that, um, you know, go well, ahead and I let people know about it. I'm, I'm really 
you know, not much on social media because I get so swamped. Um, but I do love reading the sources. I would suggest that they look at the Gospel of Thomas, various translations of it, the poem called Thunder, Complete Mind. Oh, yeah. Mind. yeah. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene. All of these are found online quite easily in translation. Um, my book, The Gnostic Gospels, was an introduction. I felt that the one you read, Beyond Belief, was a return to that about 20 years later, saying, I think I know it better now. I think I'm getting to get it. Yeah. <laughs> and and I just wrote a book called uh, Why Religion, a personal story, which is really about how I started out as an evangelical and then an ex-evangelical looking for God, not thinking that people who do that are crazy, because I'm one of them. And I find this spiritually powerful. I mean, I happen to belong to an Episcopal church, which I love and appreciate, but I add to it a lot of other things. Right. Which are quite, which is quite what many other people do as well. And I met these Roman Catholic priests who were monks. The abbot there, Thomas Keating, was very open to the Gospel of Thomas because he was a mystic. Yeah. And he read it his way. So there are people, Catholics, evangelical, Orthodox people, um, non Christians, who find this quite compelling. I was just talking to a temple in Virginia, Temple Adat Shalom, about these texts to a Jewish congregation who was quite interested mm. in the connections with Jewish teaching. Wow, that's so fascinating. Good stuff. Very Good cool. stuff. Thank you so much for being well, here. Yes, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Yes, thank you so much, Elaine. Well, this was so great. <laughs> Elaine. Thanks, Elaine, for being our guest, our heretic of the week. Um, yeah, that was really cool. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure people are interested in the whole kind of Gospel of Thomas and the whole Gnostic kind of thing. You'll enjoy that. You enjoyed that. And um, I did. So I'm into that stuff. It's fun. I can I can see I had a book. Um, I think I just got rid of it probably when I moved to uh, Ireland. But I can see like Hegel's, the Gnostic Gospels on my bookshelf mm-hmm. that was on there mm-hmm. for, you know, about two decades or so. <laughs> so it's yeah. really fun to get to talk to her. Her, her memoir is also just beautiful and Ooh. kind of soul-filling. So I just want to give that a shout out as well. Oh, no, I haven't read that. What do you know what it's this called? Lovely. No idea. Okay. But yeah, I'll just check that out. Yeah. I've only read uh, Beyond Belief and uh, the Gnostic Gospels. So. Well, um, you know, I just wanted to real quick before we jump into the rest of the episode here, I want to just say a huge thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It means so much to us. It really helps us uh, to be able to continue to do this podcast. Uh, and to provide you guys with all the, you know, the, the quality kind of show we want to be able to do. And so we were very, very grateful. Thank you so much for that. If you don't support us yet on Patreon, would you please consider going to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour? Support us. There's different tiers there you can choose from. Uh, I think one of them you can choose will actually absolve you of all of your sins. So you might consider that. And, uh, but in, in addition to helping support your favorite podcast, you also unlock so many cool, funny, interesting, exclusive bonus content, uh, stuff we put up there all the time for our uh, supporters on Patreon. And you'll also be given access to our private, exclusive Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group. So uh, head over there to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour and check it out. Thank you so much. So friends, our topic for today is the Southern Baptist Convention as we do this series on church trauma. And 
I know a lot of people have been directly impacted by all sorts of things related to the Southern Baptist Church. We're focusing particularly on the recent report around uh, sex abuse. We also know that a lot of people have been directly affected by various forms of uh, harm by people in positions of power and authority. If it is helpful to you to take care of yourself by dropping out of this particular episode, we understand because we are going to be talking about some serious stuff. And also we wanted to make sure that if you have had that experience and you haven't had a chance to get the support you need, we really do encourage you to reach out to Rain, the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network. They have an amazing hotline. 1-800-656-4673. And we hope that you get the support you need and deserve. Cool. And uh, let me add in some two cents there. Those hotlines are also for people supporting people undergoing um, trauma. So I have called hotlines, like I've called suicide hotlines, not because I myself was suicidal, but because I was supporting someone who was. So if you are supporting someone who's also undergone any kind of violence or trauma, you can also call these numbers and they're very, very helpful. Um, so this number is for everyone. Yeah, that's great. And you can also go online too, by the way, um, which is just org, And so you can check it out on, on your phone or on your browser or your computer if you want to yeah, do that. Yeah, I think they have a chat feature too. Yeah, yeah. So if you'd like it's to really cool. just chat instead. Great resource. So everyone's favorite topic, the Southern Baptist Convention. Wow. There's so many directions we could go. How do we, yeah. <laughs> how do, how do we begin? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I just wanted to say like, this is, this one is one of those topics specifically in this series where like I, I was sort of raised in the Southern Baptist church from about junior high. Um, my family and I joined one here in El Paso. I ended up getting licensed and ordained by that church. And I served at various capacities in different Southern Baptist churches for up, in, up into my twenties. And so, and a lot of my friends are still, you know, involved in Southern Baptist churches and things like that. So, you know, when I was reading this report, when it came out, I guess, what, a couple of years ago, um, the Houston Chronicle article, I was shocked, but probably like a lot of people also kind of not surprised. Um, because, you know, I mean, the interesting thing is the church that I grew up, kind of grew up with, again, in, from junior high into my 20s that I was uh, ordained in, a license and ordained in. Right after I got licensed and ordained by that church and was serving on staff at that church, we had an issue right away with an older, uh, he's one of the founding pastors, I think, of that church. And he was having an affair with a woman who was his secretary, who was, you know, young enough to be his daughter, who was also married and had children, you know, and all that. And so, I mean, that was sort of my entryway into the whole Southern Baptist uh, on staff universe was like, oh, this is normal. This is stuff that happens. So my baptism by fire kind of was going through something like that and, you know, having to figure that out as a young person. So yeah, this kind of stuff sadly happens quite a bit. And, um, and yeah, I'm very grateful for this report. Uh, I'm so glad there were the people that came forward, the people that were the whistleblowers, uh, the people at the Houston Chronicle, the, the, the reporters who did the story and, and covered all this information that essentially just held the SBC's feet to the fire to the point where they had to come out and actually admit, yes, they had been covering up a pretty huge, large-scale, interna- you know, national, nationwide series of abuses that have been going on in different churches. 
So, um, yeah, I, I guess just to say that, like, this is something where this kind of happened in my own, uh, I mean, I had already left the Southern Baptist Convention by the time this came out, but I mean, this is something where I grew up in this and felt like, yeah, this is not a good thing. And, uh, anyway, uh, I don't know what else to say other than that. So let's, uh, how do, how do we move forward with this? <laughs> yeah. With this topic? Well, okay. the, the report dropped on May 15th. Um, 2022. So I, my understanding is that the um, Southern Baptist Convention hired or allowed or something like an outside organization to come in, compile the, re- compile the stories and do and offer the report. Um, so this is, you know, I mean, it rocked a lot of people's world, especially who are in the convention and may, maybe didn't know the extent um, to which there had been sexual abuse and a lot of reports that got really, really covered up. I think it's worth, yeah. And so I think it's worth noting that in that report, they, they were told to cover uh, from around 2000 onward. And even in the midst of those constraints, they, they said, this goes back at least to the 60s um, <laughs> and possibly before. And that's right. There, were, I th- there was a secret list. Uh, I think yep. some of you have actually taken the time to read the report. And there was a secret list. They knew who the abusers were and they didn't report that out. Um, so, yeah, Keith, you had you had come across something related to that, yeah? Yeah, um, yeah. So, like, so the numbers, you know, it's like, yeah, it was a, it was twelve or twenty years. There were seven hundred victims. Uh, there was a list, a database, the Southern Baptist Convention um, privately uh, held, tracking these offenders. There were two hundred and sixty-three offenders over twenty years across thirty states, um, and and again. You know, these pastors, youth pastors, as well as senior pastors who were on staff, who uh, who had been accused of these things privately, they kept it under wraps. And then those pastors ended up just going to another Baptist church and getting hired somewhere else down the road. And so, uh, again, it was kept quiet. These people were allowed to continue uh, to operate in, in um, positions of leadership in different churches. And so it just perpetuated. So yeah, very it's a very very sad story, and it's one of these things where if if you know if an investigation hadn't been done, this would still be going on, right? This would still be uh, the best kept secret in the Southern Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm interested to know, and I, I only went back 20 years, but I looked into it, and the SBC has been around since 1845. So that's 20 years before the abolition of slavery, even. Uh So I'm thinking, you know, if they only went back 20 years and they had 700 victims, 700 plus victims or so, but this is an organization that is about 175 years old. Uh If you just divide that into there and do the math, ain't no telling how many victims there are. And and especially since, you know, laws were not as stringent and there weren't so many protocols and um, systems in place as there are now to keep things from like that happening. Like there's a, there weren't, there wasn't a sex register, a sex offender registry. There wasn't, you know what I'm saying? All the stuff that we have right now, there wasn't a background check where you could throw somebody's name into the internet and see what they've been doing. There wasn't a, a sled thing where you could do a government background check on people before you hire. None of that stuff existed in 1845 or probably even all the way up through the the 60s or something like that. And so in my mind, I'm thinking if you go back all the way to 1845, which they can't go all the way back that far, and they probably just went back 20 years because they already knew. They already knew. 
that it was yeah. going to be a lot. So we're going to put a cap on this. But if they went back that far, there's probably hundreds of thousands of victims. And I can't even imagine to what extent and, and how egregious it might have been before the last 20 years, before all those measures were in place that are put in place with the law and systems and checking and background checks and things. I cannot imagine. Yeah, and that's reported, right? Right, like, so there must be a ton of unreported too. So, um, you know, I think this is, Southern Baptist Convention is really significant because it, it, it is the largest denom- Christian denomination in the United States. Yes. Um, it's no that's longer right. only Southern, you know, it's kind of everywhere. It was, and it was funny, in my, in my time in the Bay Area, I was there about 10 years and working in, you know, working in and among seminaries and, and pr- fairly progressive people. And sometimes I'd run across someone and, okay, like, where did you do your MDiv work? And they would say, Golden Gate. Yeah. seminary, which is the Southern Baptist Seminary in the Bay Area. And it's so rare. I'd be like, really? Like, there's Southern Baptist <laughs> in California? But there's a few and they'd gone to Golden Gate. Some some, some really value that, some didn't. Uh, but I think another thing to know um, is that the Southern Baptist polity is congregational. That means that congregations are fairly autonomous in mm-hmm. how they hire who they hire, who they ordain. And so the convention itself is kind of a loosely governed group of churches that all agree to a particular kind of doctrine and a particular way that they do church, like their church business is all very much the same. And that's going to be true across like all Baptist uh, denominations. Um, But like the Southern Baptist Convention will kick out churches um, or disaffiliate churches who are pro-LGBTQI, uh, who ordain LGBTQI persons. I think if they ordained, like started coming, at, coming really egalitarian, they would probably be disaffiliated as well. So like there's not the hierarchy that other denominations have, like Catholicism, but the, there's still kind of a stronghold of patriarchal bullshit <laughs> that keeps these, um, yeah, keeps these abuses happening. And covered up. I think that's right, and I also think it's worth noting that after uh, there was a there was a very intentional takeover of the Southern Baptists. We're not going to talk too much about that, but I think it is really important to name that there were intentional efforts to t- take that swing to the to the right. That was an active takeover that happened throughout the seventies. Keith, I imagine you have a lot to say about that. I used to work for a former Southern Baptist who helped set up the Alliance of Baptists, which is kind of the leftist arm of refugees from the Southern Baptist Church. Um, but I think one of the things I want to lift up because this is a hard subject and there are people who did remarkable things over the course of many years to get us to the point where this is finally being named. So, I have very mixed feelings about Russell Moore, who was in the leadership of the Southern Baptists. And in 2021, he did make a public declaration, claimed a certain amount of shock that he claimed a certain amount of shock. I'm not going to say how I feel about that, but, uh, but he did publicly before this report even started rolling out, say, this is happening. I was, and he resigned. And then there was a guy named Philip Bethencourt who was on the executive committee who had receipts. He followed the the exact legal pr- uh, protocols he needed to to have these be useful as evidence. He recorded uh, certain meetings that the executive committee had over the course of several years and shared the audio clips publicly so that people knew that the executive committee knew what was going on and was trying to hide it. And I think that's really important. And when he released it, I love this, he signed it in Christ, 
Philip Bethancourt, Galatians 4.16. And for those of you who don't know that passage right off the top of your head, it, it says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So that is the most biblical shade I have come across in a very long time. So go Philip Bethancourt. And also for many, many years, uh, particularly women, but people who had people across the gender spectrum who had experienced sexual abuse tried to bring it public, who tried to make sure that their cases got to court. There were a lot of very brave people who had the entire force of this huge denomination against them, who finally, uh, because all of those efforts added up, were part of making this uh, possible. Krista Brown is one who had a case come forward to the executive committee in 2006. There are countless people who tried to work within the system of the church and didn't get recognition and went public. And it's incredibly brave. And it's why we finally got the attention that we, um, we finally were able to bring to it. So I wanted to celebrate those heroes, sheroes, and theros. No, thank you. And that, that's so important to do. And thank you for taking time to do that, Shonda. I just want to say, yeah. So in my you know, Katie, you were talking about like how the, the structure of Southern Baptist churches work as compared to other churches. And I, you know, again, having been licensed and ordained Southern Baptist and grew up in Southern Baptist and then later on in my life went to vineyard churches, which are very different in structure. Right? I, I absolutely noticed that. Right. So in, like you said, Southern Baptist churches, um, if you're the pastor of a Southern Baptist church, you were called to be you, you were called to that position by a committee. So they're, they're, they love committees. They're big on committees. Robert's Rules of Order. Every Wednesday, there's a Bible. There's a there's a, a church business meeting, and everybody has a voice, and you got to follow the rules and point of order and second the motion and blah blah blah. It's like it's tedious and ridiculous. But anyway, that's the the way they structure everything. And if so, if you're the pastor, you know you're sort of like you're always having to answer to that church, to that church body and that committee, usually for the things, the doctrines you're teaching, right? Things they don't like that you're doing. Um, so you don't have autonomy of like, Hey, I can just say whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. You can't, you can't fire me. You can't get rid of me. Uh, the pastor is not the CEO. He's not like the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, supreme leader, the dictator of that church, uh, as you might be in other denominations. And, but yet, and you just made, you made a good point as well. I think both of you guys touched on this too. Here's what, here's what though is ironic. So I remember there, there was in like in El Paso was where, where I was uh, licensed and ordained. There is a, um, there is a local association of Baptist churches. There's a El Paso Association of Baptist churches. So the pastors of all those, you know, local Southern Baptist churches, they, they come together. They make, you know, decisions for the larger, you know, the entire city of El Paso and those kinds of things. Those are the people that came together when they ordained me. So they all came together and had this big council and questioned me and blah, blah, blah. Right. So they, they came together for things like that. And yes, as you said, you know, you can be kicked out, quote unquote, you can be disciplined by that association, that local sort of association of Baptist churches, if you as a church sort of, you know, do something they don't like. But here again is the sad irony that the, the kinds of things you could be kicked out for would be ordaining someone who's female, uh, affirming homosexuality. Oh, yeah, they're going to show up. They're going to have a meeting and they're going to kick you out for that. Oh, but your pastor abused someone or your youth pastor sexually abused somebody. Well, you know, we let, you know, the, the local church can handle that. We're not going to get involved with that. And, and that is kind of the way it operated, right? So like I said, in my situation where, I mean, pretty much like 
like a month after I got ordained at this church, we had the situation where this older senior pastor um, was having an inappropriate relationship with a younger woman who was married in the church. And I tell you what, man, it was crickets. You didn't hear it from the association. You didn't hear it from anybody. And almost nobody within the church wanted to challenge uh, this person. Again, because he had the sort of implied authority, this sort of, you know, everybody cared about him, loved him, looked up to him, sort of deified him, put him on a pedestal. And there were, and it really did create these factions within the church. Some people just said, well, you know, he's God's man and, and, uh, the, the rules don't apply to him. And, and there were those, and there were the other groups of people like, no, this is, this isn't right. This is wrong. He should step down. And, um, and, and the, so even the church itself was divided over how to respond to these kind of things. And so I just say overall, my, in my experience with Southern Baptist churches, they are very ill-equipped to handle anything like this that comes up. And because it isn't something where it's, you know, there, there isn't sort of this overseeing authority that they can, you can appeal to, uh, or that they even have to answer to, um, it's a mixed bag. You're just going to probably get what we see the, the, you know, in this report, um, years and years and years of a whole lot of abuse going on. And the typical response is, let's just keep this quiet. Let's put this under the rug. Let's make this go away. And that's why this kind of thing continues uh, to happen. I, I think to me, in my personal opinion, the reason why they're so willing to be selective about what they choose to acknowledge and what not to acknowledge on a committee or, you know, corporate level, if you want to put it like that, is because there's complicity. If, if they, It's hard to point out the wrong that somebody's doing if you've been caught up in that yourself because you're exposing yourself. And I, I feel like because this is an organization that, like most organizations in the world, that is founded, run, and predominantly managed and overseen by men, that there is the, the nature of the men to protect themselves. And if many of them, some of them or any of them have ever been caught up in a situation of adultery or abuse or any kind, they're going to naturally lean toward protecting someone else who's been caught up in it because by extension, they feel like they're protecting themselves. Does that sound right? I oh, mean, that, that seems to me percent. like, yeah, yeah. Does that make sense to anybody? Like yeah. I'm protecting him because I'm protecting me. And if I call yeah. them out, I might get called out. Yep. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, a thousand percent. And I think there's also a um, diminishing of heterosexual abuse as being part of the natural kind of order. Or I guarantee you, if it was a homosexual abuse, <laughs> right? Pastor would be kicked out, <laughs> right? On 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 sort of that kind of sinfulness of being attracted, like same sex attraction, um, as well. But so yeah, December, I think you're bringing up like you know a common red flag, right? Which is male only leadership, right? Because there there tends to be good old boys oh, yeah. system in place, and I want to be really really clear to like just for the universe, I think um, that like this kind of abuse happens in places where there's female leadership too. Of course, right? It happens like it happens anywhere where there's institutions, and not only religious. It just happens anywhere where there's institutions. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I think it happens probably less. Uh, I don't have the stats on that, and I don't think we actually know the stats. Um, but that kind of all male good old boys club leadership is, you know, I, it maybe is a red flag. You know, what what are other? I'm just curious if anyone else has any other factors that they think go into um, making an environment where this happens 
so easily and and the cover up is okay like what are what are the other contributing factors for that yeah well something that's mentioned in the reports that we've 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 sort of mentioned but just to specifically say it that they they talked about the complementarianism um within southern baptist churches which is this, you know this idea basically it's like you know this high, extreme spiritual hierarchy of like there's god and then there's the man and then there's the wife, and then there's the children. You know, that little umbrella thing you've all through. I'm just seeing that meme on It's on, separate uh, but media. unequal. See, separate but very unequal, yes. And and that mindset really does tend to favor the man. So you end up giving the man the benefit of the doubt. And again, you end up feeling like, well, even if he did do it, you know, he's the, he's the provider for the family. And, you know, we can't ruin his career, you know, because he's taking care of his family and all this stuff. So, you know, we got to protect him. Uh, and his career and his uh, his reputation, all that kind of stuff. So I think that definitely goes uh, into, in, at least in this specific case, the perpetuation of that and the protection that's given to the to the males in this situation. I also think it's worth noting. So y'all know I do uh, a lot of work around anti racism, and uh, my American Baptist fr- uh, friends would definitely want me to note part of the reason the Southern Baptists were founded in 1845 is because of a growing schism around enslavement. Right. And I think it matters that that's part of the origin story. I think any of our churches that are founded and shaped by a narrative of empire or oppression are going to play out that the people in power get to make the rules and the rules are only enforced on those who don't have power. And so I think that shows up in this mix as well. And I think that's particularly important because that's actually true for almost all of our churches. Um, and I think that's a really painful thing for us to wrestle with. And I also think that part of how empire works, and that's how the Roman Empire worked when Jesus was alive, and it's how empires work today, is that lack of accountability for the people in power is actually baked into the system. It's true in our constitution. It's true in our local governments. It's true in our faith communities. And I think that as I'm looking for words of hope, the fact that the survivors of uh, SBC church abuse, the hashtag when some of them are on social media is hashtag SBC accountability. And this idea that we create systems of accountability that are oriented towards those who are most at risk, that ends up being the gift of this moment amidst all of the horrors and tragedy. I think that's where we're seeing possibilities for a different future. I'm not going to say for the SBC, but for us as human beings and for those of us who are Jesus followers, I think that's where the hope lies for me. And I just want to say this. There was, uh, people have said, if you go back like this, this organization dates back to 1845, this predates the abolition of slavery. I want to talk about this for just a second. A lot of, you know, when they started importing or snatching folks from Africa and bringing them here, eventually in the South, especially, the slaves outnumbered the slave owners to a point. And it was said at one point, you know, why didn't they ever come together? Why didn't they ever unite? Why didn't they ever come together and overthrow uh, the slave owners and stuff like that? It's because if you're existing on a plantation with other slaves, you have no idea 
how many other slaves are going through what you're going through on another plantation. So you're isolated to the one plantation that you're on going through whatever it is that you're going through. You don't have any idea that there's 100,000, 200,000, 300,000, a million other slaves going through what you're going through. Also, if you're kept in the dark whereby it was made illegal for the slave to learn to read and write, of course, because knowledge is power. Everybody knows that. So if you make it illegal for the slave to read and to write, and keep them isolated, okay? And then on top of being isolated and making it illegal for me to learn to read and write, um, then you work me to death. And so the only thing I have to do, I wake up before the sun comes up and I don't get to rest until sometime after the sun goes down. My entire existence is just work and survival. So I don't even have the mental capacity and wherewithal um, to, to unite and fight against anything. I'm just trying to survive. And so no one's coming together. No one's doing anything. Everybody's just slaving until the day they die, and that's their whole existence. And I'm thinking about um, there's the victims <laughs> naturally probably outweigh or outmeasure the people that are in charge of these organizations. Which are, well, why don't they come together? Because everyone is isolated. Not only is everyone isolated and probably thinking I might be the only one that went through this, or even if there are others, there's more against me than there are for me. Not only is everyone um, isolated, but there's systems that are put into place to keep people from reaching out to others because you're going to get shunned, you're going to get, whether you're going to be the scapegoat or whatever the case is, or you're going to get, what's the question, there's going to be victim shaming or something, you know, and the young lady comes forth and says, well, he did this, well, what were you doing? Because, you know, did you know that women are responsible for keeping men pure, especially like male preachers? Like we have to be careful what we say and what we wear and don't show too much skin and all this because we have to protect their purity and all that good stuff. So what were you doing to put his purity in jeopardy? You must have been wearing a skirt that was above your knees or some shit like that. And so then you have, you know, all these people that are basically on this, I'm going to call it a plantation called the SBC and nobody's standing up for anybody because everybody thinks there's some kind of isolated event. You know what I'm saying? And then if you do come and stand up against it, then you're pushed down or punished or beaten down, you know, not in the literal sense as in the slaves, but, you know, mentally and emotionally and, and, and abused in a spiritual sense that you feel powerless um, in your situation to do anything about it. And everyone around you, including the women, are indoctrinated with this doctrine that says protect the organization, protect the church, the man is right, or whatever this toxic indoctrination. And so everybody's working together to keep the victim a victim. Nobody's working to, uh, you know, to heal and make whole and restore the victim because that victim being quiet and being kept a secret and being pushed out of the organization entirely um, is, is that is the point to preserve the organization as a whole. And that's every institution, like I think Katie said before, not just religious institutions. Every institution does that, protect the, and, and the folks that are in it become so indoctrinated by that. They don't even know that they're indoctrinated by that. Um, I don't know if y'all watch Django. How many of you watch Django? Okay. <laughs> And yeah. where there's a point in there where the guy was like, he was like, "Is it? Are we all right?" It, anyways, the 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 head guy who was a black guy who was played by uh, he's a professional cuss artist, <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson. Yes, Samuel, Samuel L. Jackson. Jackson. And he played, and he's a professional cuss artist. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> he's a professional cuss artist. And he and he's like when he speaks, he speaks like we, like for the master. And you know, and and a lot of people in these churches and these organizations, not limited to the SBC, do that. They see themselves, and I don't want to get into politics, but it's the same way with a lot of these people that back up Donald Trump. These, he's like an extension of them, so they got to protect him at all costs, no matter what they see here, no matter what he says, no matter if his values are contrary to theirs. And even though they don't have five children by three different wives and never cheated on their husband, they accept that he has because he's their standard. He's their champion. And you have that same issue in the church. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to make a quick comment that uh, as you were talking there, and thank you, that was amazing, uh, December. But it's just so sad to me that why is, I mean, I know why, but it's just so wrong that, you know, when when someone in authority and power over someone else who is who is trusted, right? You think this is a safe person, this is someone who cares about me, who loves God, who who loves Jesus, who is a spiritual, you know, uh, advisor and guide for all these people in the congregation. And when someone like that abuses that authority and and exploits someone uh, in a sexual way, why is the shame not on that person? It's just so sad to me that that the sh- all the shame is on the victim. Oh no! And then that that person feels so much shame. They're afraid to say anything. They're afraid to come forward, and they know that if they come forward, that w- the first thing they're going to run into is the shame and blame for this. And and yes, the, the person who's who's guilty, the person who's done the horrific thing, um, is surrounded by this, you know, protection, uh, of assumed protection. That, oh yeah, I'll be okay. There's people that got my back. I'm going to be. I'm going to. And in fact, as we see in the SBC report, many, what, 263 offenders across 20 years and 30 different states, um, many of them just ended up getting moved to another church where they got a blank slate and could start over all over again. And no one knew a thing. That's just drives me crazy. So we did find the um, the report that has the list of the actual offenders. And so we're going to put that into the show notes for everyone. But I also just found, and I'm, um, I'm just going to presume that this is still active, but I want to put this out there. Uh, there is a, a hotline and an email for anyone that wants to, uh, that's open for survivors or someone on their behalf to report abuse allegations. So I just want to give that out right now. It's 202-864-5578. This is specifically related to the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and then the email is sbchotline at guidepostsolutions.com. So it's kind of a, the, so it's nice that that piece, that piece of care is in place. But I have, a, I have a question for everyone. I'm just curious. Um, so I, I grew up in the Southern Baptist environment. I went to a youth group at one of the biggest and most powerful Southern Baptist churches in my city and, and in my state. Um, and so I have some natural sort of suspicion and d- disregard uh, for, for a lot of that leadership, um, just based on some of my experiences there. But one red flag for, uh, for abuse and also just a red flag in general for people that might be church shopping is charismatic personalities. Is that a factor in Southern Baptist churches? As I'm thinking about it, I don't know a whole lot of charismatic personalities. Like, there's kind of an evangelical style, but we're not talking like this kind of superstar like last week with Ravi Zacharias or kind of like in the Assemblies of God with the lights and the megaphone and the all that kind of stuff. But like, is this a factor for the Southern Baptist Convention or is it other stuff? So that's a, that's a great point. So uh, just right there, in some ways, though, in, embedded in your question is sort of the answer. 
Southern Baptists are allergic to anything that looks or smells charismatic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, charismatic. Oh, what are you doing? Are you getting excited? Are you raising your hands during worship? You know, <laughs> are you having oh emotions? <laughs> are you having emotions during, oh, that, what's going on? Is that you know? the so, penetrating love of Christ or the unpenetrating uh, love of Christ? <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, though, there is still that factor. I mean, you can't get around it where like, okay, so there's a, a pastoral search committee, which again, I, we did this many times when I was in Southern Baptist churches, different churches I was on, on staff at. You know, so you need to hire a new pastor. And so you, you have them come through, you know, take a couple of months and you have these guest pastors come in and you're trying them out. And of course, I mean, which one are you going to pick? Uh, you know, the one that was more engaging, that was more entertaining, that was more funny, that was, you know, that had a good personality that held your attention. So uh, in some levels, you, you have some measure of a charismatic personality. But again, the way, uh, I think the structure, because the structure is such that, that pastor is still hired, you know, um, it kind of doesn't matter if he has a charismatic personality so much. Like I, like I saw it much more in like the vineyard movement when the vineyard movement, right. like you, it's your church that uh, you're the pastor. It's my church. And if I don't like you, I'll fire you and get you out of here. Right. So, um, and if you don't like me, go down there, go get out of my church. I don't need you. So, um, and, and those structures, yeah, it is much more about, you're there because of that pastor and that pastor has way more um, autonomy to operate and do, do and say whatever they want. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So I, I don't know. I guess it's the, in my experience, yeah, I didn't see a whole lot of personality driven kind of like pastoral people. Yeah. Not like the mini cults. Yeah. Right. Well, I think this is, I mean, this is where it comes back to congregational polity is, mm-hmm. you know, in churches where, the pastor is the primary authority. Um, the charismatic leadership helps build their power. In yeah. congregational polity, which is what the Southern Baptists have, where the congregation makes the decisions, it is very much about what the congregation will tolerate, what the congregation yep. will accept. I also come from a denomination that has congregational polity, and I have watched pastor after pastor not advocate for positions of justice because you lose your job, right? Yep, yep. And... And so I think what's interesting is in some tragic ways, this illustrates it's not just about charismatic leadership. It's also about what an entity will tolerate and what they will let go. Yeah, it's a, it's a culture that's created. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, yeah, that's right. Very true. Well, um, I just know going forward, because uh, I can see, you know, our, our bullet list of the, the other things we're going to cover going forward in this series. We're going to cover the fact that when you ask the question, you can't help but ask the question like, so what, what are the, what are the, the things, the, the systemic things that create environments for this kind of abuse to perpetuate and, and all that? And so, and we're doing our best to try to identify the things as we see them, but there's always these exceptions to the rule. And we're going to be covering some coming up in, in this series where, yeah, but what if, like, so in other words, it doesn't matter, right? On one level, you could say, well, the Southern Baptist thing happened because they didn't have uh, a clearly defined uh, hierarchical structure where there's sort of like a pope who can, you know, who they can be reported to and, and, and that, and that, that's the reason why. Yeah. But the Catholic church does have that and they also have that problem. So, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's difficult to get at the, okay, what are the things that really ultimately create this? And, and you, you said it, I think Katie, it's like, it ultimately becomes like, well, 
it's an institution. And so no matter what, you know, institutions tend to prioritize protecting them, the institution. Uh, sadly, no matter what the structures are, even if the structures are devised and designed and intended to, you know, provide uh, transparency or to create uh, elements of safety for, you know, victims or the congregation or whatever. Um, sometimes those things just in practice don't yeah. really do that. Yeah. And like, maybe it may be helpful next time if we, um, if we talk about um, healthy sexual education. Yeah. Because a lot of these people in power have no, have, have not explored their sexuality and then becomes repressed. And then that comes out in all sorts of destructive, unhealthy and unhelpful ways. Yeah. One thing you said, and um, as we get ready to wrap up, one thing you said is institution. That's one of the words that's sticking out in my mind. And here's the thing about it. Institutions are, when we, when we think about institution, we tend to think large organizations, corporations, but institutions are anything to me, to me, anything that the whole protects at all costs, even to the detriment of those that are part of the institution. It could be a family. So if there's a, a family and a lot of these pastors have treat their households like institutions, right? Where they don't have, they don't see, they have their wives, they have their children, um, but they treat their households like an institution. In other words, no one can do, what goes on in the house stays in the house. No one can do anything that brings any kind of reproach on the house. If something is going on in the house that's not going to make the house look good, you can't talk about it. We're not talking about it. Nobody's talking about it. Protect the house at all costs. So even the institution is not about size. It's about mindset. And there's a lot of preachers and pastors in households that treat <laughs> that treat their households just like these organizations treat these churches. And yeah. the people that are inside that house could be dying, suffering, suicidal, all kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, but when we step out that front door, it's all smiles. Everybody's shining like new money, like they say in my family. And we got to keep up this appearance because we got to protect the institution. Yes. And so it's just to think about that an institution could be anything that is has a united front in the public, but it's failing in private and everybody is indoctrinated and encouraged to keep up that public appearance. And it happens on the family level all the way up to the quote institutional level, you know? And so anyhow, we got, we got to get on out of here. We, <laughs> just before you do, I'm so sorry. So sorry. Um, just before we do, I wanted to acknowledge um, that exactly what you're talking about showed up in those leaked audio clips. Every, the executive committee, they're like, we do not care about these, particularly women was what showed up because they are jeopardizing this institution. So yeah. what y'all are talking about is exactly right, which is why, as I am going to do with every episode in this series, I want to, I want my closing comment to be, fuck the Southern Baptist Church. <laughs> <laughs> what she said. <laughs> Yeah, anybody else have any sentiments about the Southern Baptist Church? I think she speaks for all of us. Deep suspicion. I think that pretty much sums up what we all feel about it. (laughs) And you know what? With every organization, institution, there's some great people there. But um, it's what those at the head do with those, you know, inside Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. that defines what it really is. That defines what it really is. Anyhow, listen. 
Um, it's been fun. It's been real and it's been fun. Okay. But I ain't sure it's been really fun, but you know, <laughs> we, always, we always have fun. Um, everybody's input is awesome. I'm still going to be thinking about those stone thoughts with my unstoned frame of mind. But for those of you who've been watching, listening, um, go on over to www.heretichappyhour.com for some great information, download whatever you need to download to listen to this podcast. You need to keep this on your hip. We got some good stuff for you. And also there's some books over there by our previous Heretics of the Week that you can get at 15% off retail. So you need to go ahead and snap that up too. And after you buy your book, come post it on Heresy After Hours. It's our free Facebook group full of heretics, all posting all sorts of heretical things, uh, having fun, posting memes. Um, you can just Google, uh, don't Google it, go to Facebook and type in the search bar, Heresy After Hours. Um, click join and we have some fun questions for you to fill out in order to join. And then we like personally vet them. So we mm-hmm. see you mm-hmm. loud and clear whenever mm-hmm. you join the group. That's right. And uh, just one more time real quick, I just wanted to again say a huge shout out to our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. We love you and appreciate you very, very much. Those of you who don't support us yet, come on. What are you doing? What are you waiting for? Come on. Patreon.com slash Heretic Happy Hour. Give us a little bit of love and we will give you so many wonderful, cool, and hilarious things that you will unlock by becoming a supporter. Go check it out. One of the things that makes such a difference to us and also to people like you is if you will take the time to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It's how people like you find people like us. So are we an anarchist non-institution? Oh, what if we are an institution? How are we protecting ourselves? No, we're not an institution. Okay. That's all right then. (laughs) I think humans, I think it's the number's like 27. Once you reach number 27, humans develop hierarchy.